The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our special guest, Timotheus Pope. Timotheus Pope is the director of City Kids, a Christian sports camp in Rector, Pennsylvania, which is really close to Pittsburgh. His staff is dedicated to teaching, training, and transforming urban America through culturally relevant Christian sports programs. As you may have noticed, if you are a regular listener of the show, we've been learning from people over the last few months, and really for the history of the show, who are talking about the many facets of activism as it pertains to race. And parenthetically, I have heard from so many of you that this has been a transformational learning journey, and I am on that journey with you. Why I think our time with Mr. Pope is so important today is because he is very much a boots on the ground activist. Every single day, he is there with leaders and kids steering the next generation. And so, as you know, I often find myself asking guests in the midst of a conversation, well, what do we do? How do we do something to affect this big thing that we've been talking about? You know, how do we actually do the work of activism? And Mr. Pope is living that answer. And I think it's important to both learn from him and be challenged by him today. P.S. Wait until you hear his last answer of the interview where I ask him about the cost of activism. Holy cow, it is challenging. Well, with no further ado, here is Timotheus Pope. I wanted to start by asking you a bit about like where you came from, where'd you grow up, what was life like for you as a kid, young Mr. Pope? Great question. Uh, I actually grew up in southwestern Virginia in a small town called Hurt, Virginia, not too far huh. from where you guys are. Um, oh, well, that's that's an assumption. I think you are in northern Virginia area. Is that right? We are. So you grew up in Hurt, Virginia. Hurt, Virginia, about 45 minutes north of the North Carolina border. Interestingly enough, I saw an article a few weeks ago that said our where I grew up is the seventh most racist place in Virginia. No kidding. It's not even where I grew up. It's, it is it is where I grew up, but it's Gretna, Virginia, where I went to high school, which is only, you know, it's country. So it's 10 minutes from where I grew up, but it's supposedly the seventh most racist place in Virginia. I had no idea. This was just a question to kind of set the scene of who you are and the work you, you're going to end up doing. But I mean, did you, what was your experience in the seventh most racist city <laughs> It was the experience that um, most people who live in the South experience. Racism is as prevalent as water. I mean, it's it's a part of growing up in the South. I mean, it's not the type of thing that you are shocked by, you know, to be called N-word, regardless of where you went, wasn't new, wasn't different, wasn't, I can't believe he said that. It was more like, okay, this is just a part of it. Um, and so, like I tell people all the time, I mean, now I live in Pennsylvania, I live in the North, but in the South, you just expect it. Like you expect to walk in a store and be asked to leave. Um, that's mm. not abnormal. You know what I mean? Or you expect 
to be treated differently. And so you kind of go in thinking, hey, I got to be better than my counterparts. I have to live further above reproach than my counterparts because I already know I'm not I'm not on equal footing. How old are you? It's usually a rude question, but what? how old are you? Uh, I tell people all the time, I am somewhere between 25 and 50. Okay. If you but I mean, me, you'll think I'm on the 50 end. <laughs> if you watch me interact with people, you would think I'm on the 25 end, but I'm somewhere in there. Yeah. The experience that you had as a child, just routinely experiencing that direct racism, I feel like sometimes people think, oh, that kind of treatment of other people is more subversive now. And in a way, probably more sinister, it could even be thought of as that. But like that kind of overt, just walking around racism has not been around in recent history. But I mean, that's not your story. You are a young man. And that was what it was like for you growing up. I tell people all the time. It all depends on where you live, right? But mm-hmm. Jim Crow ended 52 years ago, 52 years ago. Yeah. So my my oldest brother is, or five of us, I'm the last of five, but he is almost 50. And so he would have been born just on the heels of Jim Crow. He was the first person in our family that would have gone to an integrated school. I mean, my parents didn't go to an integrated school. They, did, they weren't born with all of their rights. So people act like this is ancient and was a long time ago. It's like, no, this is if you're older than 52 years old, you were alive when somebody who looks like me couldn't eat in the same restaurant as somebody who looks like my wife, who's white. I mean, like it was illegal. If you're 50 years or older, it was illegal for my wife and I to be married. And so, you know, people act like it's a long time ago and, and people say things that make it seem like it's a long time ago. But it it wasn't it wasn't a long time ago. So as a kid, who are the people that that spoke into your life? Who did was there anybody around to counter that narrative? Because that I mean that can really that can really wreck a kid's psychology to be I just. I don't know which narrative? I mean, the narrative which, which narrative are you expecting to be countered? Yeah, I guess the racism that other people are treating you as less than because you are a black child walking around. Like, are there other people speaking into your life saying like this is wrong? Yeah. I mean, my dad was a pastor because I was a Christian and my dad, my dad was a pastor. So he communicated that I was created by God and created in God's image. That is what separated me from everybody else. But again, socially, I was different socially because I, my dad was a trained pastor who didn't necessarily fit within traditional, what is called the traditional black church experience for the most part. We were seen as people who are kind of in the middle. We were somewhat accepted, but not really by by majority culture. And then some were accepted, but not really by minority culture. So, you know, I remember going to school and telling people I was Native American because I had Native American heritage. And, you know, um, and, and so I just tried to stay away from either side because, again, my neighborhood was not in any way diverse. It was white people and black people. The first person I met that wasn't, that's not completely true. Like the only Hispanic people I knew or people of any type of uh, Latin descent, Spanish descent, were all people who worked on the farms uh, up near where our church was. So I didn't really know anybody that wasn't black or white that that was close to me. Uh, We didn't have any ethnically diverse last names. You know what I mean? There were no Africans. There were no Asians, there was there was nobody else. And so 
you know, everybody in our town was the last name of every slave owner you can find, or they were white. So a lot of Joneses, a lot of Stevens, a lot of Polks, a lot of Jacksons, a lot of Williams. I mean, Washingtons, Johnsons, Jeffersons, those were the Dixons. Those were the names you would find. That's so interesting. How does that begin to manifest itself? Like that could have gone a thousand different roads, right? How, how does that begin to manifest itself in in the work you're you're doing with City Kids? You know, um, as I grow older, the answer to this question has morphed. What I would have told you when I first started was, um, I grew up in a semi-poor household. My dad didn't make a lot of money. There were five of us, and I always was given opportunity because my dad was a pastor. So I got to be in some very unique spaces, meeting some unique people just because my dad was a pastor and really did try to get us some unique experiences. And so knowing what God had called me to, knowing my dad had also given us unique experiences, my real goal was to help other people get those same experiences. And so when I found out about the opportunity um, to do City Kids and come alongside Summer's Best Two Weeks and help them develop a camp completely dedicated to urban kids, I started going to camp when I think I was five. And so I went to camp from five to 16, and I knew how much of an impact it had on me. When I was 16, I actually wrote a letter. Um, we were asked when we first got there, what would you like to God to do this summer? What would you like to see him accomplish? And I have that letter. Um, but I wrote in that letter, I would like to learn enough to be able to replicate this when I get older. And so the funny thing, I wrote that letter when I was 16 and in 2012, that was in the late nineties. And then in 2012, when we moved to this new facility where we are operating city kids now, that letter, the, the folks at the camp found in a file and they actually to me. Oh, wow. And so I still have that letter to this day. And it's just a reminder of what God was doing then. So all of that said, what it basically translates to is God was working in my heart. But then I also experienced the mistreatment that made me hate racism with a passion. And then as I grew and learned about what racism was and how racism acts, um, I worked at New City Fellowship Church of Fredericksburg when I was in college as a youth pastor, which was a church that the whole point of it in the Presbyterian Church of America was to help this dialogue of racial reconciliation. So I knew I have to be involved in a space where I can bridge the gap between those who are majority culture and those who are marginalized by, by majority culture, regardless of who majority culture ends up being at the end of the day. And so then can you share with us what City Kids is, how this came to be, and how you ended up really finally forming this place? This answer has changed over time, and I want to address it as thoroughly as I can and honestly as I can, because transparency to me, I believe transparency is the way forward. So knowing my calling from age nine to now, I always wanted to be the bridge, like I just said, right? Well, when I came to Summer's Best Two Weeks, and I interacted with Jim Welch, who's the founder of Summer's Best Two Weeks. He started the camp in 1966. He had grown up at a camp in Missouri in 1966 after graduating from Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, he was placed at a church in Syracuse, New York. And at that church in the mid-1960s, height of civil rights, 
um, or what should be called human rights movement, he was asked to do a VBS. And because he had spent all of his summers at camp, he didn't know what VBS was. And so he just reproduced in a day camp model what he has seen at camp. And so as the story goes, you know, they had 70 kids the one year and then the next year they had, depending on who you ask this story, they had 500 kids the next year. I'm going to say they had 200 kids the next year. I'm not saying they didn't have 500, but 200 fits in 500. So if they did have 500, it works. And so he moved down to Fox Chapel in Pittsburgh in 1969 and started running day camps there and, and something very similar happened. Well, as that occurred, a young man in Pittsburgh said, hey, this is great for these white kids from the suburbs. What are you going to do for the black kids from the city? And at that time, you know, late 60s, Jim Crow had just ended in 1968. 1969 was you know, virtually a new world of potential for partnership. At that time, urban equaled black. Like that was a dog whistle. That was one of those words that has now you know, morphed into low income, at risk, underprivileged. But these dog whistling words really meant black. And so over time, as at risk and low income has morphed to where now you have diverse ethnicities who find themselves in these same circumstances, people have continued to change what these words mean. And so that said, when I came to Summer's Best in 2004, Jim came to me and basically said, I want to do something for the city. Well, by 2004, urban wasn't a trigger word for black, right? Like it, it still was, but not to me because I grew up in Virginia, went to school in Northern Virginia. I grew up in the country. So for me, urban was never black. Urban was city. So it didn't really matter what you look like. It was city. Well, as we did more research, we began to find out that by sheer population, the city was predominantly white women. So we started thinking, well, why are we using this word urban? Yet I knew the words at risk. I knew the words low income, disadvantage, underprivileged, all of these words. And so the long and short of it is I knew that that was the crux of it for me. That's where I need to be in that space. I can bridge the gap in that space. Well, as I've learned now over time, I was a religion major at Mary Washington College. And so a religion major is a glorified history major. We just look at the effects of religion on history. Yeah. And when specifically you speak about America, the problems that we see, and I'm happy to be argued with, but the problems that we see, the reason city kids exist is because of the disparaging of minority communities as far back as we can remember in American history. And so probably the, the most significant piece of that outside of slavery and reconstruction is the New Deal and the GI Bill that was not really extended to the Black population as it was to everybody else. Because again, at that time, as far as population goes, the majority of people in America were either white or Black. And that was really the case until 1967's um, repeal of the Immigration Act. And so looking at how America operated as a country, city kids exist because of that disparity. So the reason this is so important to me in today's time is because since George Floyd died on May 25th, 2020, I have seen more synergy in partnership and willingness for partnership than I ever have in my life. It reminds me of when Emmett Till died in 1955. 
there was seeing his mutilated body made people go, okay, this is bad. This is not right. We've got to do something. But what happens is, and that's the nature of the beast over time, as some things improve, people basically go, oh, well, that's not a problem anymore. Instead of looking at all of the second, third order effects of the system. So the camp that I direct actually exists as a second and third order effect of things like the New Deal, things like the GI Bill, things like um, real estate steering, things like redlining. Those things help create silos of minority populations that end up being impoverished and then need help to have an experience like the experience that we provide. And so my ultimate goal, as strange as this sounds, is to continue to morph city kids into what I believe God wants it to be so that the partnerships and the bridging of the gaps occurs and city kids is no longer necessary in the current form. It basically becomes a camp that services people. But hopefully, as LeBron James says with his promise schools, uh, there are no more humble beginnings. The reality is there isn't a disparity between the haves and the have-nots. My real hope and goal is that we can help bridge the gap. Uh, and, and what did Jesus say? The poor you'll always have with you. So don't get it twisted. Right. There's always going to be poor. But my hope is that we can help build a society through what we do at City Kids, help build leaders where our poorest people are still $50,000, $100,000 earners and therefore are more stable as, as families. And then the people who are your highest earners, who cares what they make? So long as we don't have an economy where milk costs, you know, $70, we get a hundred grand. But, but if we can stay where the economy is such that milk still costs $3, $4, you can buy a pair of shoes for 60 bucks that are a good pair of shoes, but you can earn a hundred thousand dollars as a single individual taking care of a household. That's really what I want to accomplish through what we do. Thanks for giving the long answer and the real answer instead of just the the one paragraph, you know, elevator speech, because that was such important context because it is so much more than a fun camp where kids come and play sports. It is that, right? But it's it's much, much deeper than that. What what actually happens in the context of this this camp then that begins to build in what you were just talking about into these kids? So everything that we do, uh, we start with God first, other second, I'm third. That's our motto. Yeah, okay. God first, other second, I'm third. Okay. The way that that looks practically is that when a camper comes here, first and foremost, they get named to a team. So every single camper that comes through our gates either becomes a Red Hot Roman or Swag Blue Galatian. As a part of that team, uh, we have four divisions, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Every freshman gets a junior mentor. Hmm. So our freshmen are between ages generally of eight and 10, right? Our juniors then are between the ages roughly of 14 to 16. Every sophomore gets a senior. So our sophomores are between 10 and 12, and our seniors are between 16 and 18. And we continue that model with them year after year as they come to camp. In addition to that, they then go through our curriculum, not just our Bible curriculum, although that's significant. We have a five-year rotating curriculum and we help build their systematic theology, we only talk about the basics. So who God is, what sin is and how it works, who Jesus is and what salvation is, what the Bible is and why it's necessary, and the authority of God 
for everyday life and then how to conform everything in life to a Christ-centered biblical worldview. As we do that, there's a second parallel curriculum track that's running that we call clinics. And these clinics are 11 uh, activities that we use to, to strategically shape the way that they view competition. So not only are they on teams competing with one another, notice I said with, not against, but we redefine competition for them. Competition etymologically means joint striving. That means you're working together. Right now, the Miami Heat and the LA Lakers are after the same goal. They both want that Larry O'Brien trophy. So understanding that both of them desire the championship, both of them want rings, they're both going after the same thing. They're jointly striving. When we help students understand that, we're teaching them that everything in life you do, you compete. Right now, I am competing for your attention. You've got other things on your mind. No doubt. You've got other things that you need to accomplish, but I'm competing for your attention. Some competitions are easier than others, but I'm jointly striving with other things in your life for your attention. As we help them understand that, the base of our core curriculum is called Gen Eds, General Education Courses, which is Bible, Swim, Crafts, and Nature. And then there are seven other clinics where we help teach them in each clinic things that they can use in everyday life. The goal then is to use all of these hidden subliminal messages to help shape the type of men and women, husbands and wives, moms and dads, they become in their city. All of that said, the most significant piece of what we do, while all of that is significant, the most significant piece of what we do is called our Kaleo program. You can't come here as an individual. You can only come here as a group and your group has to be managed by a leader from your city. So when those leaders come, my staff takes care of all of their students, but then we have a separate staff that actually helps train them in urban leadership development, community development. We teach them uh, scripture. We walk alongside them and help them understand the nuances of culture as we understand them occurring in society. So for example, we see as far west as Dallas, Texas, we see as far north as Hartford, Connecticut. We see as far south as Ahaski, North Carolina. That said, with all of these different youth leaders, and mind you, only 40% of our constituents are churches. The other 60% are parents and communities, after-school programs, coaches. So the fact of the matter is we have the opportunity to actually influence who is leading students directly in the city. People say the problem is education. The problem is not education, at least not what people know, right? It's not the information people are receiving because information is not what brings change. Hmm. If we're saying it's education, it's the type of education people are receiving. It's how people are being educated. And as I tell people all the time now, knowledge is power, but not really. What's more appropriate is knowledge is a seed. And power is the soil in which the seed grows. Every seed in that soil needs water as a resource. Well, what is water? That's money. That's time. That's energy. That's those things that we need in life to succeed. But that seed also needs sunlight. What is sunlight? Well, to me, sunlight is representation. When our campers are walking past a billboard in the city, when our campers are riding a bus and they're going 
through their city streets and they see a billboard, there's a few kinds of people you see on that billboard. You either see doctors, lawyers, sometimes real estate agents, athletes, or you see an ad for a magazine or something like that. In 2020, you may see somebody who's racially and ethnically ambiguous, right? Race, there's only one race, but that's a misnomer as well. Race is invented in 1630. But so, so you might see somebody who's ethnically ambiguous. Right. But when you're looking at the MDs, the lawyers, the real estate agents, often the students that we see here, and about 87% of our students are uh, what we would call black or African-American, which I'm happy to explain the distinction there. When they look up, they don't see themselves. What they see is people who don't look like them. So when we talk to our students and we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are the number one answers? I want to play football. I want to be a dancer. When you look at the top 10, for example, black billionaires in America, only two of them became billionaires outside of entertainment. Hmm. Everybody else, Kanye West, Michael Jordan, Robert Johnson, Oprah Winfrey, Jay-Z. I mean, anybody else in the billionaire category or close to billionaire category got there generally through entertainment. And so what we're seeing is there is a vacuum of representation in therapy, medicine. There's a vacuum of representation in real estate appraisers and real estate agents. I can't tell you how many times somebody walked up to me as a child. I'm sorry. I can tell you very easily. You can probably guess how many times somebody walked up to me in the country backwoods of Hurt, Virginia and said, hey, when you grow up, you should own your own business. Right, right. You should be a real estate agent. Right. You have a considered financial investment. Like that's not, that wasn't my life. To make it out of where I grew up, everybody thought, you know, athletics or be a singer, be a dancer. Man, please forgive me. I almost failed uh, Greek when I was in seminary. Doesn't kaleo mean like to call or to be called or something like that? You got it. You got it, my friend. That's why you call those leaders kaleo because they are, I mean, they're the ones, they are calling these kids to to this representation. Well, well first and foremost, God is calling to them. Calling them. Oh, that's right. God. Right. Yeah. And then number two, we are calling them to that as the other. But then remember, we're requiring it. So, so they're calling themselves. So again, called... Uh, invited, summoned is what the Greek word means. The way that we define it here, though, uh, as my best friend, the Reverend Dr. Pastor Christopher Mark Johnson, Sr. I had to do that just in case he hears me. That's right, Sr. It's important. But at his church, I was able to walk alongside him and, and help him develop. And not that I came up with this. I mean, they, they came up with this and we stole it from him. I, think, I mean, he might say he stole it from me. I have no clue. <laughs> But I'm going to say we stole it from them just yeah, to put it directly. Just in case. That's right. Just in case. He can clarify. But <laughs> so they talk about being called, connected, and committed. And we do too with our Kaleos. The way that we define Kaleo is a called, connected, and committed leader in a community. And so the real thought for us is the journey at Summer's Best Two Weeks City Kids for every, the destination for everyone on this journey is to be a Kaleo. That means everybody I interact with, you included. I'm expecting after interaction with me for you to be called, connected, and committed in your city. I'm not expecting for you to live where you are and put all of your roots down somewhere else. I'm expecting after a conversation with me, after somebody comes here, my expectation for every counselor, every donor, everybody, 
you are planting seeds of knowledge in the soil of power where you are. You're watering them with your time, your energy, and your other resources. You are providing them the sunlight of representation with your own life's blood, and you're watching them germinate, grow, and mature every day to the glory of God. Ultimately, that's who I am. That's how I'm built. And that's what we do. That is an incredible model. That leadership model is incredible. I want to spend our last couple of minutes talking a little bit, if we can, about uh, all things 2020, because I'm curious about first COVID-19. I'm curious what effect this has had on your kids and, and the kids that are in the camps and the kids that you are aware of that have been in the camps before. Because we talk about what it means for adults. We understand people losing their jobs. We understand you know, a lot of the effects on a very adult level, but I'm wondering what is this, what does this do on a kid level? What has it looked like for them? So Eddie, two things. Number one, your question is insightful to me. And here's why. Those students are encountering this on an, on an adult level and it's unfortunate, but it's true. And so how has it affected them? It's made it an adult level for them. Like you can't see COVID as a, as a kid, because of how many people that impacts and affects. When you think about even the, the presidential debate of a couple of nights ago, this was thrown out, it's affecting one out of 1,000 African-American people. Well, again, 87% of our constituents at City Kids are Black families. So even when I think about our full-time staff, we have a diverse full-time staff by God's grace. But even on our staff, one of our staff members, three of his family members are affected by COVID. One of them died. And so when I think about the impact that it's had on our students uh, as kids, when I think about our Kaleos, who many of them are adults, the impact that it's had is they all encounter it the same way. Like, and that's, that's the hardest part. That's a great clarification. Yeah. I, I'm trying to talk to a 12-year-old who... You know, I mean, not literally, but what I'm saying is I'm, I'm more so walking through the walking with the Kaleos through hey, this student that we have had this many people die from COVID or currently a mom is in the hospital with COVID and dad is trying to take care of everything at home or, or whatever. And I'm trying to coach them and walk with them through having all of these hard conversations like, yo, and there's no end to it necessarily. And you can't just walk up to the kid and give him a hug in the COVID era. And yet at the same time, I'm also walking with them through the things we've always had to walk through. You know, jobs not being there for people of color. Jobs that we do have often are essential jobs. So now you go into work every day afraid to bring COVID home to your family. So now you're trying to find a different place to stay. Like that's during the COVID era. Before the COVID era, though, as, as a mentor friend of mine said, you know, we call this uncharted waters and say it's unprecedented. The reality is you never know what's going to happen. And for people who are minorities in this country, we have lived in so much of an ambiguous kind of not quite sure what will happen for a long, long time. So, yes, is COVID difficult? Absolutely. I mean, everything is kind of topsy-turvy, but the hardest part for many of our students is the lack of our ability to touch them, to hug them, to put our hands on their shoulders, look them in the eyes face to face and say, hey, I love you. I'm there for you. Everything is happening right now in a distance way. And so we're trying to shepherd in a way that helps them know our level of care 
without necessarily being present. And that's really difficult to do. But but they're having a hard time. And as I've shared with youth leader after youth leader across the country, transparency is the way forward. This stinks for everybody. But when that student comes in and tells you that it stinks, don't immediately try to give that student how hard it has been for you. Right. You say you say with them, you're right. It's awful. And you let that student verbally process the pain and the hurt because they may not know how. And and too often, particularly when you talk about people who just kind of want to get through the hard times, it's like, yeah, but but you had some fun though, right? You've been able to play more video games, right? It's like, yeah, but that's not consolation for missing my friends. Right. So instead of doing that, just sit with me. You ain't got to say nothing. Just sit with me. And then once that child finishes sharing, if you listen carefully, you'll hear they said the same thing you want to say. Hmm. So how can we love one another? Hey, man, I've thought the same thing. I've felt those same things. How then in the same vein of all that has been 2020, how have you been walking with the Kaleos and by extension, the kids through kind of the national outcry because of the the deaths of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. Like, what's the echo back from these kids and how are you caring for them in the midst of that? My number one resource, my friend, is time. My number two resource is humility. So I don't have any, and not that I'm good at humility. It's a resource. That doesn't mean I use it. But I think the answer to your question is I've been available and I've sought to be as raw, as candid, and as honest as I can be. We put together a three and a half hour long discussion on race in America, redemptive ethnic unity in America is a better way to put that. It's called Body Talks. Three and a half hours done for a church locally, just to help them understand where we are historically with ethnic unity. And so then I've been available every two weeks on six different calls for our Kaleos and constituents to jump on to just dialogue with them, listen to them, sharing devos with them straight from the scriptures. I did a an Exodus series that I didn't even intend to do. Uh, but what ended up happening was I was reading through the Bible and I was learning so much. So I just started doing it online. And before I know it, there were a lot of people who said, I'm learning so much. So I was like, okay, I guess I got to do Exodus. But it was so timely for where we were as a country, as a people, that I think it was a real blessing to a lot of our Kaleos, constituents, students, counselors, and even to our full-time staff. And so then just trying to be there for people is the number one thing. I've texted some campers. I wasn't on social media, man, until September of 2019. I wasn't on Instagram until March. So right before COVID hit, I got on Instagram one night because my best friend, Reverend Dr. Christopher Monk Johnson Sr., to get on and do something. So I did that, but then COVID hit. And so I was able to just debrief out loud. And and what a lot of people communicated was just hearing your honest process has helped me. So my number one thing, and and I hope you've heard that in this conversation is vulnerability, transparency, that's the way forward. Yep. The nuance of speaking transparently to kids is so incredibly helpful. Because, right, because I walked in clearly with a bias. So like, how do you have big boy talk with the kids? And you're, I mean, the reality of it is like, you have the talk, you, you're honest, you don't hold back. And I, I think that that is, that's tremendously helpful. Um, last question. There are people that are lit up and are hearing you and their bell is rung and 
they're out, they're out, they're going to go change the world. They're going to go do the thing. I'm curious what the, the real work of activism costs for you. I'm sure there's got to be costs. I know there's got to be benefits too. And I'd love to, to speak to that, but just personally, you do a lot of exporting in your life. I'm curious how, what that does to you over, over a career, <laughs> over a life. And I don't mean to skew that in the negative. I'm skew that any way you want. I just want to know, like, for somebody who's 22 diving into this, like, w- tell me, like, what it does. A lot of answers there. Let me let me give you my my two favorite. Number one, it costs your life because it's the gospel. Activism from a Christian perspective isn't activism; it's life. So you read Proverbs chapter 31, what I call the Proverbs 31 man. Right. Everybody starts at verse nine and keeps going. But if you read verses one through eight, we hear King Lemuel's mom tell him, hey, don't drink, man. That's not for you as a king. Get up to people who are poor and perishing. No, but you, you defend the fatherless. You speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. You do justice. Micah chapter six. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with God? You read all through the Pentateuch and you'll see, keep the Lord's commands, walk in his ways, love the Lord your God with all of your heart your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. What does it cost? It costs your life. What does Jesus say? If anybody would come out to me and he doesn't hate his mother and father, sister and brother, wife and children, yes, even his own life, Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, he cannot be my disciple. He's saying, if you don't love me more than anything else in this world, what does he say in Luke 9? Nobody having put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom. So Jesus does not separate justice and action as a part of justice, is action. James does the same. A true religion, pure and undefiled before God, is to take care of the orphan and the widow, to to support the oppressed. Jesus, Matthew 25, many will come to you in that day, and I will say to you, hey, enter the joy of the Lord. When I was hungry, you fed me. Naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When do we do that? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Action and justice go hand in hand. Again, Acknowledge how you feel, affirm what you know to be true, act on what you believe. So my first answer to that is what it costs, man, it costs your life. Yeah, for sure. Second one is as a part of it costing your life, it costs your time and your relationships. What I tell people all the time is there's a difference between price and cost. And some people only want to do what will not actually cost them anything. They'll pay the price as long as the price is free. I can show up at a protest. I can be here for two and a half hours. I can say I was at a protest. It kind of cost me time, but it was a free Saturday. I wasn't doing nothing anyway, right? Right. The difference is, as I tell my kids, the price is the value of something from the seller that is communicated by the seller that he requires of you. That's the price. The cost is what it means, the significance, the consequence of you paying that price, right? So if the price for a diamond necklace for me to buy my wife for our anniversary in three weeks is $1,000, if that's the price, the cost is I can't also maybe pay for something else I wanted to pay for or buy something else I wanted to buy, right? Now the cost is, okay, the way that I was going to fix that vehicle is going to look a little different now because I've chosen to pay a price over here. And that's the way that it works when you talk about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. When you say yes to doing that, that means you're saying no to comfort. That means you're saying no 
to placating people. That means you're saying no to refusing action along with doing what is right. Here at the Pope House, we define justice as doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And so when I hear your question, I immediately think anybody who decides to follow Jesus into these spaces where he already is at work should expect to lose their life. Whatever that means, physically, you should expect to lose your job. You should expect to be killed, persecuted. You should expect to be called names. You should expect to not have friends. You should expect that the friends that you do have won't be talking to you about certain things or uh, uh, bringing up certain topics. You should expect that your family is going to look at you in a different way. You should expect to be disowned. Like that's the cost of following Jesus because that's that was his life. Man, that's intense. <laughs> that's the real answer, isn't it? Yes, Christianity is intense, isn't it, Eddie? I do. <laughs> I appreciate the real answer. Well, my deepest thanks to Mr. Pope, both for his time today and for his hard, tireless work. Thank you, sir, for joining us. To learn more about Timetheus and his work, go to citykids.org. That's C-I-T-I-K-I-D-Z.org. The link will also be in the show notes. If you have a moment, it would be exceedingly helpful if you could hop over to your podcast player and rate and review the show. It is the primary driver of getting new people to listen to the show and a great free quick thing that you can do. So thanks so much for doing that. We are on social media and we are always having good conversation over there. Both Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all New Activist is and our website is newactivist.is. A big thank you to Propaganda who scored today's episode. More on Prop, his music, his coffee, everything can be found on prophiphop.com or on Twitter at prophiphop. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world on behalf of Prometheus Pope, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>